Welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE. This is the podcast where we explore the weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm recording this at my home, which is on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Ohlone people in what is now known as Oakland, California. As many of you know, this podcast is aimed at white Christians like me who are responding to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We recognize that as white Christians, we have our own particular work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are seeking to find and uproot white supremacy wherever it shows up, including in our own Christian tradition. From there, we are seeking to follow the leadership of people of color as we build up a new, more joyful, more just world. We are building up a new world. That's also the song you're hearing throughout this podcast. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. So here we are at the first week of Lent already. I love Lent. Is that okay to say out loud? I'm not sure why I love it so much. Maybe it's because I have an honorary PhD in longing. I've been a yearner since childhood, and Lent is all about longing for God and God's reign of love otherwise known as collective liberation, or in Martin Luther King's terms, the beloved community. This year, the longing feels more keen than ever as Putin's forces lay siege to Ukraine and nuclear weapons have been put at the ready, and this on top of new attacks on trans kids in Texas and queer people in Florida, on top of ongoing and lesser noticed struggles of indigenous people all around the world resisting colonizing forces on top of continued extreme weather in the name of climate change and the ongoing war on black and brown lives here and everywhere. How, in the face of all of this, do we approach Lent? There's a tradition, of course, of giving something up as a way of marking the season, stripping away the things we might rely on instead of God as a way of growing closer to God. How are we deriving our safety, security, and sense of worth and value from sources other than our creator? And can we let go of those? Now, I know it can seem navel-gazy to talk about personal spiritual practice in the face of all that is happening, but I refuse to buy into this idea that spiritual practice and social movements are separate. I think that that is a misunderstanding that stems from the myth of individualism and a failure to understand that the material and the spiritual realms interact, something that people all over the world have understood for millennia and that colonization sought to civilize out of them. I'm convinced that spiritual practice and social transformation can be one and the same, One gesture that moves seamlessly from personal reflection to communal expression and action. How do we think about our Lenten practice explicitly as an expression of our collective commitment to shalom, that peace that comes from justice? 
it's probably true that no amount of giving up chocolate is going to get us there. Although I do think we need to divest from Nestle, Hershey, and the other mass producers who rely on slave plantations for their cacao beans. I've said before that it would be amazing if we could give up collaboration with white supremacy for Lent, or imperialism, or capitalism, or heteropatriarchy, since those are probably the biggest idols there are, and idols I rarely notice I'm relying on until I'm faced with the opportunity to speak up or boycott something, take a difficult stand in my family or community, maybe. And then I notice what I have to lose and how much I'm actually afraid to trust God with that. So far, I haven't quite figured out how to give up white supremacy for Lent, despite having co-edited three Lenten devotionals on the topic with my dear friend and comrade, Vahisha Hassan. Those are called recipicents, by the way, which means a return to sane, sound, or correct view. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. They're still available through the Transform Network online bookstore, if you'd like to check them out. So I haven't quite figured it out, but I'm still drawn to what feels like the radical potential of Lent. This moment when we touch into our willingness to sacrifice comfort and false security and surrender into something else (laughs) that I'm convinced lies along the way toward collective liberation. So that's what I'd like to explore with you this week. What is at stake in the sacrifices we make at Lent? To whom are we sacrificing really? And who benefits and why? Can we peel back the veils of white supremacy, colonialism, and heteropatriarchy enough to get, a, to get really honest about that? And then if we do, could we see how our Lenten practice might actually bend the arc toward justice? Oh, and I should mention that I think I'm going to talk some about my own relationship to food in this episode. I'll be doing that through a lens of collective liberation with an eye toward dismantling fat phobia, since that is yet another expression of white supremacy. But if for whatever reason, thinking or hearing about food and eating disorders is not good for you at this time, please take care of yourself and maybe skip this episode. With that said, let's jump in. I'm going to focus this week on the lectionary passage from Deuteronomy. It's not the most preached of passages, but I'm drawn to it because it grounds this Lenten season in the complicated practice of gratitude. I say complicated because so much of what we might consider to be the blessings in our lives, especially for those of us who are white in this country, are actually the fruits of privilege, right? There are some things we have or have in more abundance because they've been taken or withheld from others or because they come from land and labor not our own. It's really hard to be with that reality. It makes me super uncomfortable even to think about it. But we need to think about it. And actually not being grateful for what we have, that doesn't help anyone. So there's some kind of nuanced spiritual practice here to acknowledge gratitude for what we have without claiming rights to it. 
or even holding on to it? Is it possible to practice gratitude with open hands, giving thanks and also letting go, letting the resources flow out of our hands and back to their rightful purpose in nourishing all beings? The passage we're going to hear in a minute is from Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 13. I am including a couple extra verses beyond where the lectionary passage ends, because I think they're super important. This passage looks forward to a time when the ancient Hebrews will have concluded their wilderness wanderings and be enjoying the fruits of the so-called promised land. They are commanded at that time to bring the first fruits of their harvest, the very best, to the temple. As they give them to the priest, they are asked to recite a liturgy that goes like this. I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, that's Jacob, by the way, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and there lived and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. That's Deuteronomy 26. Uh, I actually read verses 3 through 13. Of course, the first thing that we need to notice about this passage, those of us who are white and Christian, is that this story of slavery, oppression, and rescue is not our story. This is the story of the ancient Israelites, a story that belongs to the Jewish tradition and that has signified the hope of liberation to Jews and other oppressed communities for centuries. The hope of safety, security, land to grow food and celebrate and be free, we don't get to appropriate that story. And yet, of course, we have. Maybe not you and me individually, but European and European-descended Christians who colonized this country using the metaphor of a promised land. In his iconic article, Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians, Osage scholar Robert, A- Robert Allen Warrior reads the Exodus stories with Canaanite eyes and reminds us that Yahweh the Deliverer became Yahweh the conqueror as the escaped refugees from Egypt entered the so-called promised land. From the perspective of the indigenous people of Turtle Island, now known as the United States, this story is, has been terrible news. 
and as Europeans appropriated also the earlier commandment in Deuteronomy, in which God supposedly ordered the Israelites to utterly destroy at least seven peoples of the land, to make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. That's Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2. That's genocide. It's smallpox blankets and surprise attacks and the burning of longhouses with women and children inside and a trail of tears and the ongoing invisibilizing and disappearing of Native people. That is not, I am convinced, what this story is about. Because this story was never written for colonizers. It was written for escaped slaves. It's one thing to promise freed slaves 40 acres and a mule, a promise that was never delivered on, by the way, and it's a totally different thing to conquer, break up, and allot indigenous land to settlers. I'm aware that my own critique of promised land theology comes from a privileged land-occupying position, and that that hope of land to provide for one's own family has kept many oppressed people alive. And yet, that is not my position. It's not our position as settlers here. And we need to wrestle with how we relate to this story. I appreciate how Derek Jensen has riffed on this command to have no mercy when the Lord your God leads you into a new land, particularly as it has been appropriated by white Christian colonists and their descendants. He riffs, when the Lord your God, sometimes called God, sometimes empire, sometimes settler society, sometimes civilization, sometimes called soldiers, sometimes priests, sometimes called progress, sometimes capitalism, always in truth being conquest. And I want to ask you, is this the God we bring our sacrifices and offerings to? Seriously, is it? Sometimes I admit I have viewed Lenten practice as a thinly veiled self-improvement project, a way to double down on flagging New Year's resolutions, a way to do better and be better somehow, even if only better than myself. I talked last week about how I think this focus on constant striving and self-improvement is part and parcel of a supremacy culture. And sometimes my Lenten practice has been in service of that. Specifically, I want to acknowledge the way that fasting from particular foods can awaken in me my own internalized fat phobia and fantasies of losing weight. When that happens, my offering is co-opted by the God of conquest and white supremacy. I'm so grateful to people like Sabrina Strings and Deshaun Harrison for their unpacking of the connections between fat phobia and white supremacy, and specifically anti-blackness. Their research shows that around the time of the transatlantic slave trade, there was new messaging to white upper middle class and owning class women about controlling what they eat in order to remain slender. A thin body became a marker of one's Christian nature. What? <laughs> a marker of one's Christian nature and moral superiority through the imposition of willpower over the enjoyment of food. Thinness became a marker of whiteness, Christianity, class status, health, morality, and you guessed it, supremacy. And at this point, this fear of fat bodies has become so endemic that almost no one is untouched by it. We have been taught to hate and fear our bodies and their desires, 
and to subjugate them to our will, or the will of a sick and racist society. In this environment, the whole concept of fasting is really, really dangerous. I think all of this is so connected to the prevalence of eating disorders in our culture. For my own self, I will say that I've struggled with compulsive eating all of my life. So when we take on a practice of fasting, to whom are we really sacrificing and why? And who benefits and who suffers as a result? Take a deep breath. Breathe out gentleness for yourself and others. This is all really painful stuff for a lot of us. Take another breath and breathe out desire for liberation. And now let's turn to the kinds of sacrifices and offerings that might actually serve to transform some of this. to turn now to the end of this week's passage, verses 11 through 13, in which the offerings brought by all the people from all around, the first fruits, the very best, are redistributed to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. See, the sacrifices the people make are not for the benefit of some transcendent deity, nor are they just expressions of pious religiosity or moral superiority. They're for the nourishment of other people, Levites, who can be understood as landless people, immigrants, and poor people. That's who those orphans and widows are. This is concrete redistribution of resources in the service of restored relationship. That's what really gets me, that the sacrifices brought to the temple are meant to be used for a giant banquet where everyone eats and rejoices together in all the good things the Lord has given us and our households. That's verse 11. This abundance, all these things that we are called to be grateful to God for, are actually for the benefit of all people, all life, in joyful celebration. That's the kingdom of God. That's collective liberation. That's the beloved community. And that's the whole point of the offering of first fruits described here. Thankfulness with open hands, resources rolling out of them and into the community. How do we bring this spirit to our Lenten practice today? I know that my own church, First Congregational of Oakland, once had a sale they called the good stuff. This was long before I had found them. But the idea, as I understand it, was that people would bring really valuable things, not the old stuff they wanted to discard, but things that were actually valuable. They sold those and then donated the proceeds to organizations doing the work the church wanted to support. Another group I was part of years ago decided to take John the Baptist seriously when he says, if you have two coats, give one away. We attempted to sell or give away half of what we owned, with all proceeds going to eliminate poverty in this community. Now, of course, we didn't get anywhere near giving away half of our belongings, but we did amass a considerable amount of money, 
And then we made decisions together about how we would give that money away to people we knew, at least tangentially, who needed it. We supported someone's gender-affirming medical care, helped someone else replace the guitar that they used for busking, which was their primary source of income. We donated toward the purchase of a car so that someone else could get to work reliably. For me, there was something significant about doing this through the network of our pre-existing relationships. That felt especially healing. That decision came out of a conversation we had about how the inequity we are living with in this country keeps us from being able to be in the mutually supportive relationships we want to be in across race, class, and gender identities. We were trying to repair some part of that somehow. At the deepest level, that is what reparations are, acknowledgments of stolen labor, land, and resources, and then the effort to make repair in order to restore the mutually interdependent web of all life. Not so that people who have been harmed by us, personally or systemically, need to be our friends, but so that the larger web be restored. For the past two years, a network of churches here in the East Bay have come together during Lent to raise money toward that kind of repair. In 2020, we purchased and eliminated $4.4 million in people's medical debts through an organization called RIP Medical Debt. The following year, Arlington Community Church launched the Black Home Ownership Reparations Fund and along with six other churches, raised more than $100,000 to support Black people here seeking to buy homes, recognizing that the barrier to home ownership is what has most contributed to the racial wealth gap. The work of that project continues now as something called the Black Wealth Builders Fund. I can imagine other churches and denominations undergoing a communal discernment process around how they can return some of their land holdings to indigenous people or BIPOC-led land liberation projects. The Northern California Nevada Conference of the United Church of Christ here in Oakland just did this with our beloved Camp Casadero, releasing it to the Shelterwood Collective a queer, Black, and Native-led collective whose mission statement is to restore right relationships between and within people and nature, and thereby create reverberating circles of ecosystem restoration and community healing that return land sovereignty to Black and Indigenous communities. Contributing to these efforts is a spiritual practice. To do it seriously requires really looking at how we rely on wealth, for security, for comfort, ease, play, and celebration, rather than counting on God for those. This is serious spiritual work. So as I write this, I'm still praying about my own Lenten practice this year. I would like to give up fat phobia and diet culture this Lent as one way of withdrawing my tacit support for white supremacy and anti-blackness. What does it mean to love this body just as it is, and all bodies, no matter their size or shape? I've wanted to believe that I could love other people's bodies of all sizes and shapes without addressing my own complicated mixed feelings for my own body, but I think that's a lie. I'm also thinking about the broken relationships that characterize the way that I eat. Truth be told, I am rarely conscious of the lives of the plants and animals I consume, 
much less so when the foods are heavily processed. I think my ancestors must have had a more intact sense of that and more reverence for those plants and animals, including maybe being careful not to take more than they really needed. Similarly, I don't often think about the ways that my food ties me to the lives of essential workers, farm workers, food processing plant workers, truckers, grocery store workers. There's a whole chapter in the amazing book version of the 1619 Project that is on sugar, and I'm still digesting what all of that means for my own addictive relationship to that substance. I'm wondering about a Lenten practice that would better honor these relationships. And here I want to acknowledge conversations I've been having about this with Chosen Family lately, including Vanessa Riles, Carol Robison, Ilana Isaacs, and Jane Blenchy. Some of what I'm talking about here has come up in those conversations, so I want to give credit. We've been talking some about shifting to locally sourced foods, farmers markets, CSAs, about reinstituting the saying of grace before meals, about giving up heavily processed foods and donating the money I might have spent on those to farm worker relief efforts. It's tricky, too, because these changes must not come from a sense of shame or guilt or judgment of myself or others, which is just another form of separation and supremacy. Too often what we do in the name of anti-racism comes from self-hatred or competition. I hope we can give that up for Lent, too. It doesn't actually help in the end. Above all, I find myself wanting to give up harshness toward my own body and mind and others' bodies and minds this year. I find myself longing for tenderness as well as justice for restored relationships alongside real concrete reparations. That longing again for God, for collective liberation, for all my relations, human, animal, plant, and beyond. May we somehow one day and not too far from now, no true communion. Amen. Will you be marking the season of Lent this year? And if so, how? Can you do that in such a way that it restores relationship between you and your body, between you and other human persons, between you and the plant and animal people, and between you and God, which is probably the same as the combination of all the rest of those? Are there others in your life that you can talk to about these things? And is there a way for you to collaborate and support each other in your revolutionary Lenten practice? I'll put links in the transcript to RIP Medical Debt and the Black Wealth Builders Fund in case you'd like to contribute there. I bet there are also some amazing efforts underway in your own community that you could come into relationship with. So that's what I've got for you this week, folks. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can comment on our podcast at SoundCloud. Search for The Word is Resistance. 
You can also comment on this episode where we've posted it on our Facebook page. Look for Surge Faith. Or visit our website, surge.org, to respond to our listener survey. We'd love it, too, if you'd give us a like wherever you're listening to this podcast. That helps us reach more folks. Be sure to tune in next week for a liberation word from Reverend Ann Dunlap. You won't want to miss it, so be sure to subscribe. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Claire Hitchens. Claire, so much love and gratitude to you. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for fruitful longing, restored relationships, and deep healing as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.